Hello, and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of the USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. My name is Giordano Romano. I am a curatorial assistant and tour guide aboard the USS Slater Historical Museum in Albany, New York. I am a recent graduate of the UAlbany Public History Master's Program, and my area of study is military history. On today's podcast episode, we are going to de-classify USS Brow. David Atkins Brow was born on June 15, 1914, in Pueblo, Colorado. Growing up in Pueblo, Brow had attended local public high schools before going to the University of Colorado at Boulder. There, he would eventually graduate with a Bachelor of Science degree in Civil Engineering in 1938. For the next year, he would work for the Colorado State Highway Department and the Colorado Fuel and Iron Corporation until 1939. On July 10, 1939, Brow enlisted at Denver, Colorado as a seaman second class in the U.S. Naval Reserve. Several days later, he would report to the Naval Reserve Aviation Base in Oakland, California for elimination flight training. After a successful completion of all necessary tests, he would be honorably discharged as an enlisted man on October 24, 1939, and the following day he was appointed an aviation cadet in the Naval Reserve. He would take part in flight training at the Naval Air Station located in Pensacola, Florida on October 30, 1939. By August of 1940, Brow would be appointed ensign. Brow would be stationed on the west coast, especially after the attack on Pearl Harbor for fear of more possible attacks by the Japanese or even a subsequent invasion attempt. At the beginning of the United States entry into the war, there was a necessity for the armed forces to remain on high alert. The Imperial Japanese Army and Navy had invaded multiple targets across Asia and the South Pacific, including U.S. territories such as the Philippines, Guam, and Wake Island. But a greater shock to the American public came when the Japanese made an air attack on Dutch Harbor in Alaska, and subsequently invaded and occupied the lightly held islands of Kiska and Attu. The initial response from the United States military was in the form of multiple air raids against Japanese shipping to and on both occupied Aleutian Island. David Brow, by this point, was a patrol plane commander and operated in the Aleutians from the 10th to the 20th of June. After participating in numerous bombing raids, he was recommended for the Air Medal for his actions. However, before the medal could be presented to Brow, he was sadly killed in an accident on July 30th, when his plane crashed while returning from a scouting mission. The Air Medal was instead presented posthumously to his sister, Mrs. Dorothy Jack Bell. David Atkins Brow was 28 years old. Nevertheless, his legacy did not end after his passing, because in 1943, he would be honored for his service in a unique manner. On January 22, 1943, the keel of USS Brow would be laid down at Consolidated Steel Corporation in Orange, Texas. She was named as such in honor of Lieutenant Junior Grade David Atkins Brow for his service in the United States Navy. USS Brow was an ETSO-class destroyer escort. As an ETSO-class, she would have a displacement of 1,253 tons standard and 1,590 tons with a full load. Her length was 306 feet and a beam of 36.58 feet and a draft of 10.42 feet. Her propulsion system consisted of four Fairbanks Morse diesel engines and four diesel generators, giving the ship a total of 6,000 horsepower that helped turn her two screws. Her top speed was 21 knots, which is equivalent to 24 miles per hour or 39 kilometers per hour. 
She could crew a complement of eight officers and 201 enlisted personnel on board at any given time. To all appearances, she was a small ship, but was packed from bow to stern with a plethora of armament for attack and defense. She carried three single-mount, three-inch, 50-caliber guns, each with a firing output of 10 rounds per minute. There was also one twin 40mm anti-aircraft gun mounted in the stern of her O-1 deck, and eight single-mounted 20mm anti-aircraft guns around the ship to defend against incoming enemy airplanes. In addition, she possessed one triple mount of torpedo tubes, each with a single 21-inch Mark 15 torpedo for anti-surface ship warfare. Despite all of this weaponry on board, these were mainly for surface actions, while the destroyer escort was not only capable of, but originally designed for anti-submarine warfare. For this purpose, Brow would bolster eight depth charge projectors, which have the ability to launch Mark 6 and Mark 9 depth charges at an average range of around 300 feet away from the ship. On the stern of the ship, there were also two depth charge tracks, which would allow depth charges to roll off and fall behind the ship. Finally, on the bow, there was another depth charge projector, which was designed as a forward-throwing anti-submarine weapon to launch 24 hedgehogs at once. These were British-designed mortar projectiles that employed a contact fuse and carried either 30 pounds of TNT or 35 pounds of torpex. Just one of these making contact with the U-boat was enough to sink it. After extensive work by the shipbuilders, USS Brow would be launched on April 10, 1943. Mrs. Dorothy Jack Bell, sister of Lieutenant David Brow, would serve as the sponsor and christened the ship. On September 18, 1943, USS Brow DE-148 was commissioned by the U.S. Navy, and command was placed under Lieutenant Commander Kenneth J. Hartley, a native of Jamestown, New York. Like all new ships and crews, Brow went through an intense shakedown period to prepare for the coming convoys in which she would cross the Atlantic ferrying merchant ship. For two months, the Brow would travel from Norfolk, Virginia to Charleston, South Carolina and towards Bermuda. The shakedown training allowed her crew to become familiar with all the ship's components, from her weaponry and propulsion system to her SL radar and truly becoming tin can sailors. However, before her shakedown cruise was actually complete, the Brow's crew had to fight through heavy seas and fog on the 12th of November. While steaming at 13.5 knots, rough seas had caused water to bend the gun shield of the number one three-inch gun forward of the ship. Captain Hartley decided to investigate, along with the chief's bosun's mate and Ensign E.B. Smith, to help repair the damaged gun shield. According to the ship's war diary, all three men were standing inside the gun shield, but a heavy sea hit the starboard side and knocked all three down. When the CBM and Ensign Smith picked themselves up, they found Captain Harley lying against the lifeline on the starboard side of the ship. They acted quickly and moved the captain into the wardroom, where he was given immediate medical attention by pharmacist mate First Class Johnson and pharmacist mate Third Class Malchok. Sadly, there was nothing more that could be done, and Captain Kenneth J. Harley was pronounced dead at 0913 hours. The Brow then changed course from Bermuda back to Charleston, and on November 16th, she made port in Charleston Harbor. It was here that the body of Captain Harley was removed and handed over to his family for burial. He would be the first casualty on board USS Brow, a testament to how dangerous life could be while at sea, and how an accident aboard these ships can lead to deadly results. USS Brow then left Charleston and proceeded to Norfolk, 
Her first convoy duty began on November 29th, when she was ordered to steam from Norfolk and rendezvous with Task Group 64, accompanying convoy UGS-25. UG convoys, such as the previously mentioned, were designated because of their departure and destination zones. This particular route would have convoys depart the United States, hence the U, and head for Gibraltar, G, before making its way to several ports in North Africa. The S in their designation stands for slow, as these convoys generally travel at a much slower rate than their UGF counterparts, F meaning fast. This was due to the top speed of some of the ships being quite low. For example, the top speed of a Liberty ship was about 11 to 11.5 knots, while most destroyer escorts could reach 21 knots. USS Brow would attach the convoy and took station in the middle of the starboard side of the escort screen, thus relieving USS Inch, DE-146. The convoy remained fairly quiet, with the crew being able to practice some gunnery drills along the way. Eventually, they reached the Straits of Gibraltar on December 11th, and later that day, anchored outside a jetty at Casablanca, Morocco. Their first convoy was completed, and had been a success delivering much-needed supplies and equipment for the ongoing Italian campaign. After spending several days moored, Brow would once again head out to sea, this time alongside GUS-24 to guide merchantmen safely back to the States. By January 3rd, 1944, the Brow had reached New York City and moored alongside USS Decker, DE-47, in the New York Navy Yard. While back in the States, the Brow's crew was given time to practice anti-submarine ASW training, as well as replenish fuel, ammunition, and other necessities on board. She also spent some time receiving emergency repairs for multiple dents along her hull after an accidental collision with USS Hammond, DE-131, while berthing in port in Norfolk. On January 26th, she steamed alongside as a unit of Task Force 64 to ferry convoy UGS-31 to the Mediterranean. After an uneventful convoy, UGS-31 arrived in the waters around North Africa on February 11th, and the Brow was relieved from her escort duty once more. During a patrol near Gibraltar, Brow once again had another collision incident, this time with USS Ormond Megrin, DD-255, causing slight damage and bending several frames of both ships. Luckily, there was no serious damage, and repairs were made to both ships at Gibraltar Harbor. Conveniently, both ships were moored alongside each other, albeit by their undamaged sides. On February 16th, she set off again to guard convoy GUS-30 back home and took station on the starboard flank of the convoy. By March 7th, the convoy reached the safety of U.S. waters, and Brow, after accompanying her section to Chesapeake Bay, sailed independently back to New York. After three weeks in port, convoy duty beckoned and USS Brow answered the call. This time, she would join Task Group 21.8, accompanying convoy CU-19, and depart for the United Kingdom on March 28th. The CU convoys originally departed from Curaçao, an island long held by the Dutch. The starting point eventually switched to New York City, while the end point, Liverpool, remained the same. This particular convoy differed in a number of ways from the UG convoy series. These convoys were actually much smaller, with CU-19 consisting of only 27 merchants and 6 escorts, while the previous UG convoys totaled on average over 100 ships. A lot of the tankers that were present in the CU convoys were also a bit faster, 
as some were able to sustain a much higher speed, equal to that of their escorts. So this specific series also became popular for the transport of various fast vessels. By this point in World War II, the Atlantic Campaign had shifted in favor of the Allies. Back in May 1943, the Kriegsmarine had lost 41 U-boats in that month alone, which is more than they had lost in 1940 and 1941 respectively. The turning tide had come, thanks to the efforts of sailors aboard destroyer escorts and the capabilities their ships held to counter such a threat. On April 7, 1944, convoy CU-19 reached the entrance of the River Foyle in Derry, Northern Ireland. USS Brow would only spend six days in berth before heading out to guide convoy UC-19 back to the States. And on April 24th, she was anchored at Gravesend Bay, New York, to await replenishment and further orders. By early May, the Brow would be attached to Escort Division 3, or Court Div 3 and would participate in several exercises, ranging from gunnery, ASW, and even DDPT drills. On May 12th, USS Brow steamed along with convoy TCU-24, departing Brooklyn at 1000 hours. After only 11 days out to sea, the convoy reached its destination at Moville, Low Foil, Ireland. While the merchantmen and escort ships were anchoring, USS Brow suffered yet another collision, this time with USS Hammond DE-131. According to the Brow's war diary, her stem was broken 9 feet above the waterline and bent aft from about 3 feet above the waterline and the skin was torn and wrinkled. Two days later, she would need assistance from a tug as the Canadian ship HMCS Dunver, a river-class frigate, had to get underway out of berth. After minor repairs and replenishing ammunition and arms, USS Brow joined convoy UC-24 and arrived in the States on June 8th. After further extensive gunnery training, the Brow set off as an escort with convoy CU-29 on June 26th. On July 4th, she arrived in Northern Ireland, where she would only spend six days in berth before setting off with convoy UC-29 and arrived back to her home port on July 19th. In September, the Brow was escorting convoy CU-39. In the afternoon on September 13th, the ship was steaming on course when an unfortunate accident took place. Several sailors were in the act of testing the depth charge projectors. This required precise direction and communication, such as having all eight projector breaches open and for the men to be using sound power phones. Neither of these directions were followed completely, as although four projectors had already been fired off correctly, the number four projector was not ready. Poor communication, lack of visibility, and miscoordination sadly led to this projector being fired, while Seaman 2nd Class Alwyn W. Wood was leaning against the in-place depth charge to prepare for launch. Thus, when the projector was fired, Wood was launched along with it into the sea. A man overboard alarm was immediately sounded, and the ship's whaleboat was put into the water to find the sailor. The whaleboat crew were able to locate him and brought him aboard for the chief pharmacist mate to check him. Regrettably, Alwyn Wood had died from injuries sustained during the initial blast. At 1837, a burial at sea was conducted, as the sailor was buried with full honors, in position latitude 38 degrees, 47.2 minutes north, longitude 64 degrees, 40.2 minutes west. 
Seaman Second Class Alwyn W. Wood was from Floral Park, New York, and had sadly left behind a wife, Mrs. Idella Wood. He was 37 years old at the time of his death. For the remainder of 1944, USS Brow would escort three more convoys back and forth across the North Atlantic. As an escort in convoy CU-51, her eighth convoy of 1944, her crew would spend Christmas while at sea. The following year, she would head for the United Kingdom on three more occasions as part of convoys CU-57, 63, and 70. The latter of which was her final Atlantic procession, as by this point, it was May 15th, and the war in Europe had ended. An interesting tidbit I'd like to point out is that while the fighting in Europe had ceased, there were still some necessities to these convoys. Firstly, the United Kingdom throughout World War II had been threatened with starvation by Nazi Germany, cutting off their supply lines by the sea. Even with the war over, it was still an important task to send food and other supplies that would help these people, as well as the millions of people on the continent. Secondly, many of the ships traveling this late in the war were now transporting the thousands of GIs back home who had been discharged or were to be just discharged as the war neared to a close. After her final convoy, USS Brow would continue on various stations, such as steaming south towards Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. In July 1945, alongside several other destroyer escorts, she would take part in rigorous anti-aircraft gunnery practice. By this point, her triple mount of three 21-inch torpedo tubes had been removed and replaced with more 40mm Bofors anti-aircraft gun mounts. These modifications were made as an attempt to buff up the ship against kamikaze attacks. The Empire of Japan had not yet surrendered, and multiple destroyer escorts were being rearmed and refitted to head for the South Pacific. It is theorized that those who were on course for this theater would have most likely been part of the planned invasion of Japan, Operation Downfall. After completion of gunnery exercises around Cuba, the Brow sailed towards Coco Solo Canal Zone. Between July 21st and 22nd, the Brow passed through the locks of the Panama Canal en route to San Diego, California. She would arrive on July 21st, but only remain for five days before heading further west towards Pearl Harbor. For the remainder of August, the ship's crew spent most of the time continuing to train on gunnery skills, but also DAQ exercises. The latter refers to the use of the High Frequency Radio Direction Finder, or HUFDUF, that some destroyer escorts carried. This would allow the ship to listen to frequency transmissions from German U-boats in the North Atlantic or Japanese submarines in the Pacific. Such a unique and powerful form of technology that the Germans and Japanese didn't even know we had such equipment, and thus, were unable to counter it. But for all this training and preparations made over the last few months, it would all be for naught. On September 2nd, 1945, Japanese representatives aboard USS Missouri BB-63 signed the Instrument of Surrender, bringing an end to the Second World War. USS Brow would remain at Pearl Harbor for a couple more weeks before heading back east. On September 20th, she was moored at Coco Solo before passing through the Panama Canal the next day. On her return to the East Coast, Brow would then prepare for her decommissioning. With the end of the Second World War, the US military began to downsize, and while the hundreds of destroyer escorts played a significant role in the Allied victory, there was no room for them. 
Alongside dozens of other DEs, USS Brow would sail towards and make anchorage at Green Cove Springs, Florida. As of December 1st, 1945, she would remain mothballed and placed in a reserve fleet, awaiting her unknown future. The majority of destroyer escorts would sadly not have a future, as they were eventually scrapped. But USS Brow would be one of the lucky ones, because in the summer of 1951, she would be brought back into naval service. She was recommissioned on September 7th of the same year due to the ongoing Korean emergency, more colloquially known as the Korean War. USS Brow was placed under the command of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Hewlings of Pennsylvania. She was overhauled by the Merrill Stevens Shipyard in Jacksonville, Florida, and immediately attached to the U.S. Atlantic Fleet and entered an, an intensive shakedown period. By the fall of 1952, the Brow was participating in joint NATO operations being conducted in the Atlantic. After visiting several European and Caribbean ports, she reported to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a scheduled shipyard overhaul. She would remain in port throughout the winter and into the next year. During this time, Commander Hewlings would be relieved of command by Lieutenant Commander D.W. Abercrombie III of Massachusetts on January 31, 1953. After this change of command, the Browse crew went through a quick shakedown period to allow her new captain and crew to all get adjusted. She would steam to Guantanamo Bay for refresher training, and despite having a green crew, the Browse progress was so effective that she was released one week early, a privilege not relegated to most ships at this time. The Brow would travel up and down the East Coast for several months, stopping in Newport, Rhode Island for a short while before heading towards Key West, Florida in early June. It was here that she would provide services to the U.S. Fleet Sonar School and would operate in waters off Florida daily. Until the end of August, USS Brow would act as a school ship for officers and enlisted students alike who were training in sonar school. Upon her return, she berthed alongside USS Yosemite AD-19, a Dixie-class destroyer tender, for overhaul. It was discovered that the ship's generators warranted overhaul, and so the Brow was sent to the Naval Shipyard Portsmouth in New Hampshire for necessary repairs. In November, Brow would serve as the flagship for Commander Escort Squadron 14, and participated in Operation Springboard. During this operation, Brow would operate in Caribbean waters and visit various ports, such as San Juan, Puerto Rico, Ciudad Trujillo, Dominican Republic, and St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. After completion of the operation, she returned to Newport in December, allowing the crew to have leave for Christmas. In early 1954, she operated around Newport on a daily basis, until March when she was ordered to return to Key West for another tour of ASW training at sea. In August, at the end of her ASW training, command changed hands once again, with Lieutenant Commander G.E. Lockie from Columbia, South Carolina, relieving Commander Abercrombie. With her new captain, the destroyer escort, in company with USS Hughes, DE-145, USS Blair, DE-147, and USS Maurice J. Manuel, DE-351, journeyed to Newfoundland, Canada for three weeks of exercise along some submarines. When exercises were complete in mid-September, the Brow began preparations for the Joint Atlantic Fleet Exercise of 1954. Her assignment would consist of operating against submarines off the Labrador coast within the vicinity of Hamilton's Inlet. On October 20th, the Brow, along with the rest of his squadron, all departed on their biggest operation yet, Landflex 155. USS Brow would participate in convoy escort work for the first time since World War II, but also engage in anti-submarine patrols. 
Our convoy duty included escorting a training force that would make amphibious landings along the coast of North Carolina. After completion of the operation, USS Brow would return to Newport, and the crew was once again allowed leave for Christmas. After the winter, the Brow reported to Boston Naval Station, where from February to April 1955, she would receive overhaul and equipment modifications. After her refitting, her crew underwent a three-week refresher program at Newport in the following June. On July 9, 1955, the Brow departed from Norfolk on the first leg of Midshipman Cruise Baker and traveled to Scotland and Denmark before returning to Guantanamo Bay. The cruise ended on September 3rd, and Brow was ordered to report to Key West three weeks later for further sonar school training. The remainder of the year was spent training and traveling back to Newport for another holiday leave. The next year began once again with fleet sonar school and then some anti-submarine exercises. However, all this training was a necessity, as USS Brow and her crew were about to become part of a much larger operation that would take them to waters more frigid than the North Atlantic. By July 1956, USS Brow went through three weeks of upkeep as she departed for a six-week restricted availability at Portsmouth. All of this preparation for the last couple of years for the upcoming Operation Deep Freeze 2. Before setting off, two events took place aboard the destroyer escort. Firstly, she received the Battle Efficiency E plaque for her crew's high level of sustained proficiency and readiness whilst performing in an operational environment. Secondly, Lieutenant Commander Lockheed was relieved of command, as Lieutenant Commander W.P. Duan of New Orleans took the helm on August 23, 1956. On September 4th, Brow departed Newport to join Task Force 43 and steamed independently through the Panama Canal before reaching Dunedin, New Zealand, one month later. It was here she would begin her duty as part of the deep freeze operation. Beginning in 1955 with Operation Deep Freeze 1, these were naval and air operations that were required to operate in, an in Antarctic waters to resupply U.S. Antarctic bases. Despite the relative obsolescence of a destroyer escort at this time, they still played a key role. USS Brow was fortunate due to her ship's class. As previously mentioned earlier in the podcast, she was an Etzel class DE. This meant her propulsion system consisted of four Fairbanks Morse geared diesel engines. Because of these engines, the Etzel class DEs were more efficient than most of their counterparts, and by the 1950s, dozens of these ships were put back into service. For the next five months, USS Brow would operate on her picket station at 57 degrees south, 170 degrees east. Her main assignment during Deep Freeze 2 was to act as a weather reporting, communication, and if necessary, a search and rescue ship. On average, the pattern of operations for the Brow to act as a picket ship would last between 19 and 21 days at sea, and then a further 5 or 6 days back in port. The time spent on these operations, though, were far from easy. The Antarctic waters weren't exactly the easiest to navigate, as ships had rarely passed through them within the last century. High winds and 40-foot waves were common, and if one were to accidentally fall into the icy waters, the odds of survival were slim to none. Luckily for the Brow and her crew, they went without incident during this peculiar operation and were on their return trip to Newport by March 2, 1957. A brief stop at Callao, Peru, and then they continued to Boston Naval Shipyard, where she arrived on May 8th for an overhaul that was required for their next task, Operation Deep Freeze 3. 
After completing their overhaul and before they departed, Lieutenant Commander W.P. Duan was relieved of command by Lieutenant Commander B.E. Boney of Toxie, Alabama on August 7th. The ship then spent several days alongside tender USS Yellowstone, AD-27, to complete her preparations for seven months of independent duty for the upcoming operation. On August 26, the Browse steamed for Dunedin from Newport, crossing the Panama Canal once again, and arriving on September 25th. During this deployment, she would make five trips to 61 degrees south, 170 degrees east. One of these trips even took her across the Arctic Circle on February 5th, 1958, making it a first for any destroyer escort. On three separate occasions, she endured through 75-knot winds, the equivalent of what is felt in a hurricane. In March, USS Brow completed her second deep freeze operation and returned to Newport on April 2nd. By May, the ship departed for Key West, her new home port, and continued her operations as part of Fleet Sonar School. During this period, the Brow was also reassigned to join Destroyer Division 601. Her time spent in the warm Caribbean waters wouldn't last long. USS Brow had the unique assignment of being part of her third and final Antarctic operation, Deep Freeze 4. She departed on August 23rd for her third consecutive year, under the operational control of Commander Task Force 43. She arrived in Dunedin just under a month later, and immediately went to her station out in the cold, dark waters of the Antarctic. Between August 23rd and November 19th, the Brow spent exactly 78 days at sea and was in port for only eight, a stark contrast to her first deep freeze op operation. Time had passed and on February 7th, 1959, USS Brow would leave Dunedin for the last time. As she departed, her crew was waved goodbye by 4,000 New Zealanders, an indication of the friendly and comforting relationship between the Brow and the citizens of Dunedin a city that welcomed them as their temporary home. The Brow by this point in her history had worked towards a list of countless achievements, but it didn't end after she left New Zealand. On her previous return trips, she would travel back east and pass through the Panama Canal, but this time she headed west. For the next 66 days, USS Brow and her crew would make stops at countless ports, such as Perth, Australia, Colombo, Ceylon, Aden, Arabia, Athens, Greece, Naples, Italy, Cannes, France, Barcelona, Spain, and Gibraltar before ending her journey on April 14, 1959 in Key West. The end of this long and arduous journey made USS Brow the first destroyer escort to circumnavigate the world alone. A remarkable achievement. After the voyage, she went through some rigorous upkeep that lasted until May 22nd. She was then deployed for 10 days off Puerto Rico, where she acted as a missile recovery ship for the famous Jupiter missile. The missile was carrying two monkeys, Alpha and Bravo, on board, and the recovery group was successful. Between July and September, the Brow underwent regular shipyard overhaul while in Key West. During this period, Lieutenant Commander J.L. Moss relieved Lieutenant Commander B.E. Boney as commanding officer on August 18th. For the remainder of 1959 through 1960, the ship spent her time providing services to the Fleet Sonar School down in Key West. On February 6, 1961, command changed hands once more with Lieutenant Commander E.J. Carey of Seattle, Washington, relieving Lieutenant Commander J.L. Moss. From March to May of 1961, USS Brow was busy training and only interrupted for some upkeep. 
In April, she visited Miami to represent the U.S. Navy at the Miami Beach Servicemen Center 9th Anniversary Celebration. She made her way back to the U.S. Naval Station, Key West, for restricted availability. Rao was forced to return to Miami in mid-July, but while stationed there, the crew got favored by a visit from not only Miss USA, but also Miss Finland, both contestants in the Miss Universe pageant, though neither would win the contest. On July 15th, Commander Destroyer Force U.S. Atlantic Fleet had announced that USS Brow had won the Battle Efficiency Award for Competitive Excellence for her service in Destroyer Division 601. This was the second E that the Brow had earned during its active duty. For the remainder of 1961 and early 1962, the Brow would continually provide training to student officers and enlisted personnel attending Fleet Sonar School in Key West. The rest of 1962 saw the destroyer escort travel up and down the East Coast along with destroyers, cruisers, and fellow Ds. Sadly, like all World War II era destroyer escorts, the time was simply not on the Brow's side. In June 1965, USS Brow would be decommissioned, and on November 1st of the same year, she was stricken from the Navy list. In January of 1967, USS Brow was sold for scrap to Buyer Boston Metals Company in Baltimore, Maryland, a fate shared by almost all of her type of ship. USS Brow's career was not desultory by any means. In 25 months of active duty in World War II, 373 days were spent on patrol, with her guns manned and full watches always on high alert. She was brought back for further service to take part in several deep freeze operations and provide assistance to U.S. garrisons in the Antarctic being resupplied. In the many years spent in Key West, countless naval officers and servicemen received ASW training from her or alongside her. She earned numerous commendations, including the American Campaign Medal, the European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, the Antarctic Service Medal three times, and two battle efficiency ease during her 17 years of service. The USS Brow and the men who served aboard her followed her motto to a T. Frontier Guardian, in peace, in war. Similar to my USS Tomich DE-242 podcast several months back, which if you haven't listened to, I highly encourage it, uh, this is usually the part where the podcast ends. Having said that, the purpose of the USS Brow podcast was not only to cover the history of this particular destroyer escort, but to honor a sailor who served aboard. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Mike Marco, a former volunteer here aboard USS Slater. Mike had served in the U.S. Navy right after graduating high school, as his mother wanted him to earn his diploma first. He would serve aboard USS Brow as a fire controlman first class, taking part in two of the deep freeze operations, and was part of her crew when she circumnavigated the world. Mike was also a native of my hometown, Syracuse, New York, so we chatted in our free time and he always told the most fascinating stories. He was a kind man, a wonderful mentor, and above all, a tin can sailor. Thank you, Mike.
Thank you for listening to this month's edition of DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash declassified. I am Giordano Romano, and I hope you join us next month, where we'll declassify another Destroyer Escort.